Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. There's a labor movement bubbling up in our region, and the baristas at your favorite coffee shops have been at the forefront of pushing it forward. We're seeing this play out at a Starbucks in Knoxville and the popular Three Brothers Coffee here on West End, as workers there have voted to unionize. So what is behind this labor organizing effort? What are the coffee shop employees asking for? And how could these recent moves affect the future of labor organizing in our region? On this Labor Day holiday, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of our July episode on union efforts in our region. But first, Tennessee has been hit harder than just about any other state with rural hospital closures. In all, 16 have closed since 2010. They're fighting the same financial headwinds that have challenged many rural communities, along with the lack of Medicaid expansion in Tennessee and most southern states. WPLN's Blake Farmer has reported on a lot of these closures, but now he's tracking one that has done what no other has, reopened. He's here to talk about whether we can expect more reopenings. Hey, Blake, how's it going? Hello, Khalil. So, you know, you've been following a company called Braden Health since the start of the year. They've acquired a handful of hospitals between Memphis and Nashville. What have they been doing out in Haywood County? Yeah, and sure, just to orient you, Haywood County is uh, between Jackson and Memphis, actually a little closer to Jackson than Memphis, but uh, about an hour outside Memphis. Um, the hospital is right uh, just outside the, the town of Brownsville, which is the county seat there in Haywood County. So um, we've done some stories about this company from Florida, Braden Health, acquiring um, these hospitals kind of in West Tennessee. And they started with one in Henderson County. Now, it was already running and doing okay. They also have one that was really struggling in Houston County, but it never actually closed. Um, so it is way different to actually reopen a hospital. And the one in Haywood County closed in 2014. We're talking eight years ago. Mm. Um, it was sort of the early wave of rural hospital closures. Um, and, uh, you know, why is it news? Well, it kind of had this soft opening last month and, and should be fully licensed in the next 60 days or so uh, because they've passed all their state inspections. What do you mean by soft opening? I'm familiar with that in terms of restaurants, but hospitals? Well, it's, it's kind of my term, not theirs. But uh, it, it's a little complicated, but they, they uh, right now they're really just operating this thing. It's called a rural health clinic. Um, and it's uh, think of it as like an urgent care. And, and it's you walk into the ER and there's a door over here and you can go into the, the, the clinic um, and that clinic actually will continue operating once the ER is officially up and running. But um, in rural areas, you know, a lot of people really just need primary care, like uh, help managing their diabetes, let's say. And they don't necessarily need an ER, which can be, as we know, really costly. So um, even after they get fully up and running, they can divert people over to the rural health clinic if it's not so serious. But for now, that is all that is going. But it's enough to at least see, you know, are the patients going to come? So how's it going? I assume patients have gotten used to driving to cities for care. Are they coming back? Yeah, you know, I was there for the first day. Kind of, I even felt bad because, uh, you know, the, it, it was a soft opening. Like I said, we weren't doing a big ribbon cutting, but we had to wait till the afternoon until the first patient arrived. Uh, but they did come, and they—I uh, checked in with them, and they—they they are seeing more than a dozen patients a day now. And um, 
that is more than the new owners plan for at this point since, you know, they don't have that ER up and running yet. But for some perspective, when the hospital closed, they were admitting like just one patient a day. Mm. So, um, you know, even before it closed, this hospital had obviously lost the faith of the community. You know, it seems like this would be a really difficult time to reopen a rural hospital given hospitals everywhere are struggling with staffing. So who did they get to work there? Well, to my surprise, many of the employees um, were there when the hospital closed eight years ago. Um, Those folks have come back, at least some of them. Um, They were, you know, ready to work closer to home, even if that meant taking a risk on this new hospital that obviously had had so much struggle over over the years. Um, Janine Ng started her lab career at the hospital as a lab tech and and left before it closed in 2014. And she's one of the ones who's back uh, running the lab. I asked her why she returned. You know, it's been difficult and there have been a lot of days when I just felt like, you know, is this going to work? Is this going to work? And then something just in the back of my head, keep saying, yes, just give it a chance. We're going to spread our wings and we're going to fly. And I believe that with all my heart. She said she's actually trying to convince her sister to come back, too. She's a radiology tech, uh, but she moved into a new career after the hospital closed as a teacher. Uh, but in a way, they're trying to get the gang back together. Um, and and from the folks I talked to, they're really um, glad to not have to drive to Memphis or Jackson to go to work anymore. So what are the odds this is going to work out and this hospital won't be at risk of closing again in the near future? Well, certainly not a sure thing. I mean, um, there's a reason the prior owners uh, pulled out. And it, by the way, that uh, company is based here uh, in uh, near Nashville in Franklin, uh, Community Health Systems. Uh, but they pulled out and, you know, they couldn't even sell this hospital. They gave it to the local government. Um, that just shows you, you know, how, how much value it possibly had um, in the, the healthcare business world. The new owners, Braden Health, have not paid much of anything for these hospitals that they're taking over, um, but they are making some sizable investments in them. And the company believes there is a way to run rural hospitals that can still be profitable even without Medicaid expansion in the state, um, which you hear so many hospital operators blaming their troubles on, at least in rural areas. Now, you mentioned that it was just one patient the day before closing. What will it take to earn that community trust back? Well, uh, you know, that that's what they're working on. Uh, what, what are the things? Some of them are small things. Uh, they had kind of had this project that um, when they were renovating this hospital, which took millions of dollars, they decided they were going to save all of these tiles that were put up all over the lobby and the front entrance of the... Uh, they realized that uh, these were very special to the community because people would come in and ask about them. Mm. They had handprints from all the kindergartners who'd come through the local schools. You know, okay. you can imagine this kind of thing in a hospital. Hospital. It had, you know, they sign their name and have the year, and and folks, delivery drivers would come in and say, "Wait, you saved the you saved the tiles? You still got them? I want to see if I can find mine." So mm. um, it's, it's little things like that, um, trying to say, "Hey, we're going to be part of this community," uh, but then also just providing care that people would actually prefer to come to this hospital rather than drive to, let's say, the hospital in Jackson, which um, because of all of the hospital closures in West Tennessee, it's now got one of the busiest emergency departments in the entire state. Wow. So, new owners, help me understand why this company would be able to run the hospital any better than their previous owner. I mean... That is a very good question. Um, Braden Health, which was started by an emergency physician in Florida uh, named Bo Braden, um, he kind of has this thesis that if you offer the right services that will get plenty of use, 
but not the services that will lose a bunch of money. Um, you know, and you also stay on top of wasted materials. He's big on making sure their supplies don't don't get out of date and have to be thrown away. Um, also, he very on top of. Trying not to be overstaffed, which is often a very big problem when you're dealing with these low numbers of patients you might be seeing each day. Um, they kind of say it's it's not a secret sauce, but there's a way to make it work. And um, they're not doing this on the cheap. You wouldn't walk into these hospitals they're renovating and, and think they were uh, uh, anything less than you see, uh, you know, the nicest places around. Um, they've invested in new technology. Um, they're really big on making sure they have the latest CT scanners, which are very expensive pieces of imaging equipment. Um, but they say one of the reasons that patients have to be referred to bigger hospitals is because you you don't have the technology to do, let's say, a CT scan, which you use for all sorts of things. Could be head trauma, could be mm-hmm. uh, pneumonia. Um, but they say this way, they'll be able to keep more patients in their hospital and have them admitted, which means they will have to pay a bill at some point, uh, but it'll keep the hospital afloat rather than just being an emergency room that sends everybody to the big city. So will we see more rural hospitals reopening in Tennessee? Well, Braden Health has plans for at least one more. Um, Decatur County General Hospital is now there. Years, uh, but it is currently trashed. I mean, it is a total wreck, literally has been flooded out part of it. And so it is going to be a while before that thing actually gets going. There are uh, other companies, or at least one more company that's working in Tennessee. There's one called Boa Vida um, that is working in Jellicoe, Tennessee. And I hear they're looking at other hospitals as well that are closed and, and could potentially reopen. But essentially, Communities are desperate at this point. Um, they're willing to basically give away these hospitals so long as it's the, the community, the local government that owns it. Uh, it, it, so long as someone seems to have some experience and will commit to running them as hospitals. But for what it's worth, the, the big health systems, even those that specialize in rural hospitals, and there are several that are based here in Nashville, they're not going after many of these facilities. Often the economics they're pretty black and white when you look, you know, on the ledger. E- even being the only hospital in these towns, in these counties, if the population is aging, the local economy is sputtering, it means you don't have many working folks with private commercial insurance, which is really what hospitals need to thrive. So before you go, that reminds me. You've So we've got this company working around West Tennessee. Is this related to the Big Blue Oval City announcement where Ford is building this massive battery and truck plant? You know, uh, that was pure luck for them. I mean, they had no idea that Ford was going to make this massive, nearly $6 billion investment. Uh, in fact, it's really it's in Haywood County, where, where we're talking about here. Um, they started buying these hospitals in 2020 before any of that came out. Uh, but you're exactly right, though, that that kind of thing, uh, where you've got this growth in rural communities, where you're going to have new jobs, all sorts of jobs are going to be tied to that, that is going to help support uh, this hospital in Haywood County, perhaps even the ones that are farther away from from the new plant. Of course, uh, it sort of also shows how it can be this vicious cycle, because a hospital is also one thing a community needs for big industrial employers like Ford to want to even agree to build a big factory somewhere. Mm. Blake Farmer is WPLN senior healthcare reporter. Blake, thanks for your coverage on our rural hospitals. Appreciate it. You're welcome. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of our July episode on the unionization movement at coffee shops in Nashville. So stay with us. This is Nashville.
I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The pandemic has made a lot of us look at employment differently as people have reevaluated their relationship with work. Things like working at home, livable wages, and good health care benefits have become increasingly important factors when considering taking a job or staying in one. The coffee business is no exception. This spring, employees at the popular Three Brothers Coffee on West End voted to unionize, and they aren't the only ones. My next guest says she tried to get a similar effort off the ground at Barista Parlor. Soshi Cruz Lopez, welcome to This is Nashville. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you with us. So tell me, how long did you work at Barista Parlor? Yes. So I was at Barista Parlor for about seven years. How would you describe your time there? Did you enjoy it? I did. Yeah, I really did. It was a, you know, fun place to work out with everyone, um, like with the coworkers. It was just a, it was a good time. So in December of last year, you began to have conversations with management about wages. Why? Yeah, so it actually started in October when we started having conversations. Well, I started having conversations with upper management about wages because this has been an ongoing topic amongst all the baristas, you know. Um, In the past, um, we've had people leave. We had people work double jobs trying to sustain themselves and support themselves or work doubles, and it just didn't seem fair, you know. Were those conversations you had, were they encouraging? With the coworkers? With with management. With management. They always seemed like they they were telling us or telling me that, hey, like what whatever you wanna discuss, talk about, like it's okay to come up to us and talk about it, you know? Um, so it seemed like they were receptive, but they the conversations never went anywhere. So you did begin to have other conversations. Who were you having those with? Those other conversations were with the coworkers. So what happened next? So I started hearing about how other people at the shops were feeling a similar way and they wanted to change things and take action, you know. So I started reaching out to other people from other shops and kind of having meetings, you know, outside, outside of the shop and talking about ways that we can change or ways that we can approach collectively, all of us approach upper management and change how wage has been at the shop for so long. So so in those meetings with all the different uh, locations of barista parlors and mm-hmm. your colleagues, were you all specifically talking about unionizing at that time? We had discussed to unionize for sure. Yeah, we were exploring all of our options and which option would be the best one for all of us, you know? Mm. So after a few meetings with your colleagues, something changed. Can mm-hmm. you can you tell us what happened? Yes. So um, we we like as far as the coworkers, like we were all feeling pretty encouraged, and we were really um, for this, you know. And um, somehow, you know, management found out about our meetings, our collective ideas, and everything. And I. I got fired for it. You know, they, out of nowhere, just one, like one day they, I had a call from the uh, operations manager at Barista Parlor. He calls me. He's like, hey, um, for reasons of disrespect and subordination, we're letting you go effective immediately. Now, did you have any, ever have any incidents? 
you get written up sometimes jobs, you know, when you there's an incident happening with an employee, there's mm -hmm. a process of writing people up. And after a great number of them, then they find that reasons to let people go. Have you ever had anything like that happen? Not in the seven years that I was there. No, I never had any disciplinary action. I used to manage one of the shops, you know, mm -hmm. so I had been there for a long time and I had a good relationship with upper management. So the allegations of me being disrespectful and insubordinate just didn't add up. So how did you feel when upper management called you and told you that? I I had a feeling that this was going to happen. You know, I when I started to get a kind of a sense that of, oh, they might know because I had been pushing for this for a while. I didn't know that they had been told, you know, but the conversations lasted for so many months that I felt like I was kind of on thin ice, so I kind of felt it coming. But in that moment, I was trying to process everything that happened and what was going to happen after that firing, you know, with everyone still at the shop. So my first, you know, response was like, Oh, are they going to fire anyone else? Anyone else that were at the meetings? Uh, but I was also really mad, you know, mm. after it happened. Mm. I do want to say that we reached out to Barista Parlor about today's show. They reject claims that you've made. But in a statement, they've told us, quote, unionization is an employee right and Barista Parlor respects that right. We have not and would not attempt to curtail that right. So... You know, since you've been gone, have you kept in touch with your former colleagues? And if so, what's their reaction been to all of this? Yes, yes. I'm still very good friends with a lot of them. And, you know, we talk every now and then just to catch up. And they're still upset about everything that's happening. As far as wages go at the shop, they, Barista Parlor, the company, gave uh, a company-wide wage increase of a dollar to everyone like a few weeks after I was fired. Um, but that's not enough for people. You know, they're still upset. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil e. Colonna. We're talking this hour about labor unionizing efforts within the local coffee industry. My next guests have been instrumental in the unionization of employees at Three Brothers Coffee in West End. I'd like to welcome labor organizer Anthony Fern Welsh with Universal Workers United and Paige McKay with Rock Music City, a chapter of Restaurant Opportunity Center United. Thanks to both of you for being with us today. So, Fern, let me start with you. You were a barista at Three Brothers Coffee, right? Yeah, yeah. So what was the impetus for you and your colleagues to unionize? Um... It was all about a bunch of conversations that we were having, like ongoing conversations about what is the status? Like, do we feel appreciated about our work? Um, we're talking about living wage, you know, things in Nashville going up in price. I actually worked here in 2018, 2019, mm -hmm. came back uh, at the end of 2021 and um, didn't get a raise, but like cost of living was noticeably higher. I realized I didn't come back to the same uh to the, can to the same living standard. So I'm like, I, I can't survive off of this. Um, I'm struggling off of this. So um, beyond that, just like looking at different things that where people or looking at different instances where people felt mistreated, um, ultimately like a group of us were in agreement, like we want to see some change, not just for ourselves, but like the standard to so, change for the industry as a whole. So right. what motivated all of you to kind of step up and help out? realizing people don't really go, you know, they don't come to work with a peace of mind. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how 
how you feel, but I know a lot of people, they get payday, you know, payday comes and then, then there's still stress. <laughs> yeah. Know, there might be even more stress on payday, just knowing, like actually doing the calculations, like, oh, tips weren't that much or, uh, oh, I got hurt and I don't have insurance and we're all, you know, aging. So I'm 26 now or 27 and I'm not on my parents' insurance, you know, these things adding up over time. In those conversations, how much did people talk about the pandemic kind of opening up their, their minds or their views to some of these things that they would like to even out and make better for themselves? Yeah. The pandemic played a huge role. All of the workers uh, at Three Brothers, in a major way, um, the pandemic shapes how they're, they're viewing their work experience right now as far as they walked through the struggle, I guess. Mm-hmm. They walked through the shop closing, shutting down, the uncertainty, um, you know, people having to, or owners having to file, I think, PPUs um, to get some kind of more assistance for their workers and having to go with that uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, I just wanted to support them through that. Like, I didn't walk with them through that part, but I wanted to support them in that. Now, Paige, you helped start Rock Music City, and you all specialize in working with the service industry. What makes labor organizing within the service industry unique? Um, Yeah, I did. And in the service industry, restaurants and coffee shops were long thought of being impossible to unionize, impossible to organize, um, because there's such high turnover rates and there's such small amounts of loyalty to different restaurants, but the loyalty comes to your coworkers. It comes um, in, in most industries and in a lot of industries, you see loyalty to the actual job. But with us, I think it makes us unique that the loyalty you often have in a restaurant, especially in a place like Nashville, where the hospitality workforce is the largest labor force in the city. Um, our loyalty comes, to, comes from our other workers. So once you build that solidarity and that community, People want to unionize, not just for themselves, but for each other. And I think that's the piece that's missing from a lot of organizers' minds. Well, how are you all able to address those very specific needs within the service industry? Because we're in the service industry. Um, The people working in ROC Nashville are still working in the restaurant industry. I've been in it for almost a decade, and I still actively am in restaurants. My main job. I work 30 hours at a restaurant every week. Mm -hmm. So I think when you're in it and you continue to be in it, you can only organize these things when you understand what they need personally. Those needs change. And once you leave, it's easy to forget to no fault of anybody's. But that's why I think ROC is able to organize something that was considered unorganizable. Now, in, in my past careers, I've I've worked at the service industry as a bartender, as a server, and I know that it's sometimes very difficult to get everybody on the same page, even to decide a time to meet. How do you all tackle that challenge? Digital organizing. Okay. Um, during the pandemic, it became the only way to organize, and that's when I became part of the organizing community. And I was trained as a digital organizer because we had COVID. There was no other way to meet. And I think that coming to people where they're at and the capacity they have, because our capacity changes every day. And in late stage capitalism, where we are right now, especially our capacity is going to change every single day as people that are working paycheck to paycheck and don't have health care and don't have child care and don't have any other means of getting help. Our capacity changes. It's never going to be the same. So constant communication, checking in with people, utilizing group chats, utilizing text messaging, utilizing Zoom, utilizing other other different apps to keep people involved. Expecting people to show up in person to a meeting 
to me, it seems a little less considerate of them because it's just not going to work that way. You have to diversify your communication with people. Now, Soshi Cruz Lopez is still with us. Soshi, from your experience, does what Paige is saying, does that really ring true? Yes, for sure. You know, everyone's first, but going back to the community aspect, you know, it is very true that the way that it's different from coffee community or the service industry compared to other industries is so true. You know, we're all working pretty close together. So that aspect's true. And then trying to get everyone together working in the service industry, you know, as you know, it's hard with everyone's schedules, but the, the way that communication and, you know, digital, um, and internet has made it possible. Um, it's a great thing. So yeah, I agree. It's interesting that this movement is happening at coffee shops, Mm -hmm. you know, Fern, what is it about the coffee industry that makes it a favorable kind of environment for labor organizing? Um, I'd say coffee shops, coffee industry as a whole, like it adapts a lot. Um, you hear terms like third wave, co- third wave coffee. Um, you know, there's these distinctions between like Starbucks or these uh, shops that, you know, where they have a little bit more personal touch to them. And I think a lot of the workers in coffee shops, like they hold to that and um, you give people that free reign, like how far does their expression go? It goes beyond just like, does our shop look cool? But do we also feel valued at our shop? Mm-hmm. Um, which, yeah, I, I think coffee is going to take it far. It goes from like Chile here in the States. Like there's a lot going on around the world within coffee industry. Do you feel that coffee shops themselves have this image of being politically progressive? They definitely do. But that, I feel like that's just like the generation, like who's growing up in it right now. Mm. Mm. Um, Explain. Uh we're growing up in the time we're in, you know, I'm 27. So, you know, I think I work with a few people who are a little bit older than me and I work with a lot of people who are younger than me. So you've got this, like, we grew up with the internet. We grew up with computers in our houses and our phones and we understand uh, social media a little bit more. So we understand that, that representation and how to, you know, flex that muscle a little bit more. Um, and when we're asked, like, what do you need? What do you want? Like, it is a part of us to go to our phone and, you know, maybe ask a question and put it out there into the world and see what the response is like. And that's kind of what it materialized into. Mm. Now, Soshi, what's next for you now? Next for me? Yeah. So um, I'm a student. I'm in school, you know. Um, And so doing school and just continuing to speak about what I'm doing, um, like I've said, this movement is so much greater than, than me or, you know, it's not just about barista parlor what happened to me it's about making sure or like making sure but like just spreading the word that other workers have rights especially in this state you know or in the south what are you studying i am studying neuroscience i'm a pre-med student okay so real quick what so as you move forward considering what you said Mm -hmm. in your medical career Mm -hmm. how are you going to use these experiences to kind of guide you in the work as you do that you do in the future yeah there's a lot of uh still a lot of inequality even with students and as you if anyone out there who has been going through like who's gone through medical school i haven't yet but i have a few friends who are in medical school um there's still a lot of inequality there with uh the not just the pay discrepancies, but in terms of workload and conditions and everything. So I will continue to advocate for all of us. 
That is Soshi Cruz Lopez, former employee at the Barista Parlor, who says she was fired for attempting to organize her colleagues. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about labor organizing in our region and invite a representative from the AFL-CIO to the discussion. Are you currently a member of a union? Are you fighting to organize your coworkers? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. While the push for unionization at coffee shops is a fairly recent phenomenon, labor organizing in Tennessee goes back quite some time. What has it looked like in the right-to-work state? And what does right-to-work even mean in today's environment? Labor organizers Anthony Fern Welch and Paige McKay are still with us. Fern, so let's start here. What does right-to-work mean exactly? Um, right to work means that workers, uh, in the workplace who maybe are uncertain if they want to be a part of a union or not, they have an option not to. So for, for example, uh, we have a union vote, somebody votes, no, they don't want a union. They still reap the benefits that the union workers, you know, fought for, but also, you know, that's like the face value version of it, like at a deeper level, um, it helps provide cheap labor, like here in the South, and we've got a bunch of right-to-work states, this little bunch of right-to-work states, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, it goes on. Um, right-to-work protects business owners, really. Um, it mm. gives them something to use to mobilize people against each other, to pit workers against each other. Okay, Paige, can you elaborate on that? Um, yeah, I definitely can. I feel like with right-to-work, as we know, it it like Anthony said, like it, it only benefits the owner. It gives the owner opportunity to fire anybody without cause, without explaining why they could, they could claim it was anything, but you can usually pretty well see what it is. So in a state like Tennessee, you see a lot of people getting fired for things like being trans or being gay in a lot of establishments when, and they can claim it, you showed up late two weeks ago. And it's very hard to fight because we are in a right to work state. Um, and as far as unionizing go, it, goes, it does absolutely cause workers to not see the benefit of being in a union if they're going to get the benefits anyway, which we would like everyone to have the benefits regardless. We, we would hope that no one had to fight for the very, very minimal requirements we're asking of businesses when we're unionizing. I'd like to bring in my next guest. A.J. Starling is the secretary and treasurer of the Tennessee chapter of the AFL-CIO. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So now the AFL-CIO has been working to protect workers' rights for nearly 70 years. In your opinion, what are the benefits of union membership? Well, it's it's a, a lot of benefits. Uh, first, uh, you have a voice on the workplace when it becomes issues of safety, uh, working conditions, uh, uh, vacations, uh, salaries. We normally negotiate for those particular benefits. And it makes it, it gives the worker a voice. It feels like they're part of what they are working for. How long have you been a part of the AFL-CIO? Gee, a long time. Uh, I would say 28 years. I've been in this movement, and uh, I've loved every 28 years of it. So you've got this personal long-term perspective on this. Tell me, what has labor organizing, what has that movement looked like in Tennessee historically? 
Well, it's been it's been tough. Um, we've had to struggle. Um, I do know when I first started in this movement, we had a lot of plants here in the state of Tennessee and throughout the country. And when NAFTA was passed, a lot of those companies moved, mm-hmm. uh, which vault our work, which brought our capacity down a lot. So it's been hard to organize in the in the service industry a lot. So talking about right to work, what kind of challenges does it prevent to do present to do this kind of organizing in a right to work state like Tennessee? It's tough, but as I listened to the to the other guests earlier, it's all about personal choices. It's all about do you want to be part of having a voice in the workplace? When we have those issues come up and people want to be recognized and be valued, it becomes an easy two. Uh, in, in Tennessee, uh, I think workers are mistreated. They're mistreated in a lot of ways. As the young lady said earlier, uh, just getting fired for no reason. Uh, we need to stop that in this day. Now, how has the pandemic kind of informed the new work that you all are doing at the AFL-CIO? How has that affected it? Well, basically, it's brought out uh, those concerns. It's brought out that voice that wasn't heard always, uh, you know, getting fired, getting sent home, not getting a paycheck when they should got. It's, it's actually created the voice that you're hearing earlier from the other guests. So, you know, speaking of the pandemic and a lot of other things in the world, we are in a great moment of change in a lot of ways. Have you all had to adapt what you do? With, to keep up with the changes in the labor force and the kind of things that workers today are looking for. Absolutely, we had. Um, the When I started in the labor movement, we did mostly mailings and uh, the phone calls and the door knockings and things like that. Now we've got internets. We've got uh, Twitter, Facebook. We've learning to adapt and reach out to people through those mediums, which has caused these increases for people to hear what the labor movement is about. And a lot of times people think it's all about money. Well, we care about people. We care about working conditions. Have you had an expressed interest or jump in interest since the pandemic? Yes, uh, quite a bit. As a matter of fact, we've had several uh, organizations that have affiliated and formed uh, since the pandemic. I would say from the state level, we've had at least five. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking about the labor movement in Tennessee, where it's been, where it is, and where it's going. You know, I think many people would say that having more than one labor organization is, group is a good thing for all workers. More people can receive more help and support and find the approach that fits them best. Paige, tell me, what sets Rock Music City apart in your approach to labor organization? I think that what sets us apart is that we are staying in the community and we have more of a community um, aspect to that. Not that, I mean, every other group does too, but, but we specifically are in the restaurant community. And that's such, like we've talked about, such a hard group to unionize. And so I think being more specifically focused on the hospitality industry and, and actively working in those restaurants with them is what has set us apart so far. And, and I think there are other groups that are focused on you know, other groups, bigger groups, and they're in those communities. So I think that's why it's so important that we're here now, is that these groups need someone that specifically is is involved with them. 
you know, the hospitality industry has such a strong, very strong union in Nevada, but they also make up a larger percentage of the overall workforce in the entire state. What makes Tennessee different? I mean, probably, I guess simply though, there aren't as many big cities, right? Um, Hmm. So, you know, in Nashville specifically, the labor workforce of the hospitality labor workforce has a stronghold on this entire city. And really, if you think about it, Memphis and Nashville's labor and hospitality has a has stronghold on the entire state because all of the money that the state is getting out of taxes is coming out of Nashville. And the people making that money are restaurant workers. And when restaurant workers start to realize that, that's when real change can happen. Now, AJ, do you all work with Rock Music City? Yes, we, we have a, a good relationship and, and through our state organization as well as our central labor councils. Uh, I do know the central labor councils uh, work really close with, uh, with these organizations. How important is it that multiple labor organizing organizations kind of have good relationships with each other within a particular region, a city or a state? Well, I think it's always great to have great relationships. That way you find out what particular issues that are that are necessary or important to the workers that are individuals. And we, we look at the, the whole uh, aspect of the human aspect in a job, not just, you know, a lot of times people think that uh, we're looking at money and so forth. We're looking at working conditions. We're looking at the health issues. And we're looking at just a gamut of things. So we can we can represent that family as well as that individual. Now, Fern, what makes Universal Workers United different? Um, sorry, it's actually Unemployed Workers United. Unemployed Workers United. But okay. it is universal. Um, what makes it different is it started off as Unemployed Workers United, a response um, to COVID-19. Um, so kind of like the question you asked earlier, like about, you know, COVID and like organizing, a lot of people realized that they had no backing. They had no support. I think if unions were in place before COVID, a lot of people would have seen themselves with, you know, um, a paycheck, Mm. at least during some of COVID. They would have seen themselves with some protection. Um, But what makes Unemployed Workers United different is the fact that it is adaptive. Like it's come out of that phase of being a place. uh, It's come out of that post, not post, but that pandemic phase and now looking at workers and their experiences um, right now, like recognizing that we are, we need to lean more into like this digital age and how do we bring people together? Um, But yeah, I think it's adaptation. It's adaptability is probably the biggest thing. Um, The name is probably a little bit like misleading, but we're here to, to raise the standard for any industry, whether you're employed right now or you're not employed. Now, AJ, looking back, the civil rights movement and the labor rights movement are pretty intertwined, right? That's correct. Tell me, what's the significance for you personally? Personally, it's uh, it, it's it's all in one. Uh, if I am going to have civil rights, I've got to have workers' rights as well. And to the labor movement, if you go back into the the reason why Dr. King came to Memphis. It was a labor strike, uh-huh. and uh, a lot of people don't always know that, but it was a labor strike, and he came to represent those individuals and support uh, their right to join a union. Now, I believe, Fern, you got inspired by parts of the civil rights movement, correct? Tell me yeah. about that. Um 
Well, I'm from Florida, but coming to Nashville the first time around, just learning about the city's history, learning about the sit-ins that were taking place down downtown. Um, you you can go check them out at the downtown library. They've got this civil rights room, and if you go into that room, they've got a bunch of books, they've got pictures, they're pointing at all these different figures, but they also have some documentaries where they like talk about the anatomy of a protest and the preparation that goes into organizing, and not just like the here are the facts, but here's like where we need to be mentally um, as we're facing, you know, the people against us, the people who are the union busters, what have you. Um, and yeah, and like like AJ was saying, um, people don't realize that um, those things are intertwined, like the civil rights movement and the labor rights movement. But it is, it is, yeah, fighting capitalism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, AJ, you're a longtime union member, and you've seen a lot of change over the years. As we move into the future, where all of us are looking at employment and the nature of work differently, you know, what should we keep in mind? Well, number one, we should always keep in mind that we're dealing with human beings. And we're dealing with their families along with it. And that's why they work. They work to support themselves as well as their family. Do we need to tweak on how we need to reach and reach out to people? Absolutely. Uh, Technology is changing every single day. It's changed probably today than it was yesterday. So we are going to have to learn to use those instruments and use that technology to advance our cause to represent our people. How do we do that when people look at unionization as a political situation, as a political divide and whatnot? How do we how do we approach the humanity in this? Well, number one, with the two speakers that we got today, they're young individuals, and those are the people that it's going to help this labor movement move forward. They're going to do it as sight on scene. Uh, a lot of times we can send messages out through Twitter, Facebook, uh, and all the, the other ways. But guess what? At the bottom line is, do I trust A.J. Starling as an individual to tell me the truth? And as long as we can continue to always keep that human element involved in it, as Paige has said, we're we going to have to go to where people are. We're going to have to learn to get off our horses and you know what and go and say it's a better way it's a better life through organization page how does that resonate with you hearing what he's saying about the importance of humanity and young folks oh i totally agree with that i think i said recently to someone um you know workers aren't a pawn when we're trying to unionize um because a lot of it does feel like a chess game and i'm sure aj and i know anthony can both agree with this is it sometimes maybe we want to be like, okay, you need to do this next. And maybe they're not comfortable with that. And we have to listen to them. And uh, I'm, I agree with everything AJ said. Yeah, it's we have to remember who we're working with and that they're humans and that they're going to think about different thing, things differently than us. They're going to learn differently than us. They're going to work differently than us. And the workers should be leading all of this. Them and their families know what they need more than we're going to know what they need. And that's something else with restaurants and coffee shops. What are your hopes for the workers of Tennessee? My hopes is to see them liberated. I hope to see them all with the power. I hope to see them seeing the profit that they're producing and to know their rights and to be able to fight for those rights and to get involved with organizing in a, in a sooner, sooner manner. I hope to see them get more involved in these groups and see where they can get plugged in. Fern, what are your hopes for workers in Tennessee? 
my hope is that we see each other a little bit more clearly. Um, and then I like just an example, if we all walked around with our hourly wage, um, written on our chest, I think that we would realize that people really close to us are struggling a lot more than, than we would realize. We would realize that difference in class. We'd realize that different in daily life. Um, and I, I hope people could get fueled off of, you know, just like that awareness of each other and willingness to fight for each other. That would be a very interesting day if everybody walked around with their hourly wage yeah. on a T-shirt on their chest in this town. That'd be crazy. We'd that, have to be honest with ourselves. Yeah, that would be something downtown. Now, AJ, looking in, looking ahead to the fall, right to work is on the ballot, right? That's correct. What can we expect? Well, uh, it will be on the ballot along with uh, three other constitutional amendments. Uh, I think it will be right after the, the governor's uh, race, and it will be right on the ballot. We are going to fight uh, this uh, right-to-work amendment. We'll, we will have uh, a lot of information going out in the near future, I mean real near future. Uh, we have our memberships uh, going. We've got other folks that are on the ground pushing to vote no on Amendment 1. Uh, and and w what we need to know about it is educating the general public. The word right to work, uh, you know, it was said earlier, it's such a misnomer. Hmm. And we've got a lot of education to do. And that's our effort to educate people. Because if this passes, it goes into the Constitution. And and it's a piece of legislation right now. And uh, it wasn't put in the Constitution when the forefathers written it. Now, Paige, you got 30 seconds. You know, what are your hopes for the future of labor organizing? Um, I hope to see it adapt with the people it's organizing. I love that. Fern? I, I want to double down on that, and I hope we, I don't know, that word mutual aid, or that phrase mutual aid, mm -hmm. I want to see more of that. I want to see that done more strategically. Um, we're in a big fight together. So how can we do that more cohesively? I really appreciate having you all on here. Thanks to AJ Starling with the AFL-CIO, who was joined by Paige McKay with Rock Music City and Fern Welsh of Unemployed, Workers United. Thanks to you all again for being on the show today. Now, before we go today, we wanted to come back to coffee. Coffee Black, specifically. It's a storefront in Memphis that Renata Henderson and her husband Bartholomew Jones opened back in 2020. They call themselves the Anti-Gentrification Coffee Club. Inside, well, it looks like your living room. There's a black couch, big yellow chair. The business is a celebration of the African roots of coffee and a reclamation of coffee in black culture. There's a slogan written on their cups. It reads, love black people like you love black coffee. As Renata told our intern, Doreen Schernecki, they decided that black people needed a coffee space like this by the community for the community. We have a lot of people in the community who are just like, we needed this, we love this. And specifically, we have people even from outside of the community, black people who are just like, this is the type of space I was looking for where I can look around and see other people who look like me. I hear music, I smell incense, you know, I see pictures like it's not like this uh, whitewashed walls and silence and all of this, but I can actually be comfortable here. It actually feels like my living room. 
Black people specifically don't feel empowered to have that be a part of who they are and a part of what they do on a daily basis as, uh, as an homage to where it came from. My husband, he went to school in Chicago and when he was doing like his, his all-nighters, he would get like the darkest coffee they had or whatever. And so for him, he would go into these spaces and not see anybody else that looked like him or could relate to his experience. And so that's what started kind of the questions around Coffee Black. This was right after George Floyd happened and my husband posted the words, love black people like you love black coffee on his social media. People said, I would love to see this on a shirt. And he was like, okay, cool, we can do that. Who, who else would be interested in that? He put that on a shirt. I had a Cricut cutting machine. Uh, we got some blank shirts. And um, we said, okay, we're gonna try this. We were really close already with our Neighborhood Development Corporation, and they said, hey, we got a building for you guys. We didn't want to contribute to gen gentrification. Um, and so we said, well, I don't, we don't really want to do that. So the conversation became, if you guys don't do it, somebody who doesn't care will. And so we said, okay, we'll try it. It's going to be a club. It's not a, it's not a shop. We don't want anybody to feel like they can't come in here and get a coffee at any point. We have a first sip program for people who can't afford it, uh, that you can get your first sip free. And some people are on their 15th sip at this point, 75th sip, and it's still free because we don't want to hoard something that was meant to be shared as our own. That was a big thing for us, is making sure that as a community, we share it, because that's what coffee was meant to be. to thank everyone who tuned in this hour for this rebroadcast. We'll be back tomorrow with a fresh new episode for you. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harush and Rose Gilbert. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudho. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekulona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. Thank you.